thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists, coming to you from two sides of the world, Perth in Western Australia and Cambridge in England. Here in Cambridge, we'll be bringing you the latest science news, including how scientists can predict whether groundwater is contaminated with arsenic and what effect does sugar have on our willpower. Meanwhile, here in Australia, we meet the dolphins that live in the river in the centre of a city, we find out how DNA technology is preventing birds hitting aeroplanes and how to educate kids who live a thousand miles from school. We deliver a Naked Scientist's lesson for the Outback. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can look us up on facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Hello, I'm Kate Lamble and I'm joined here in Cambridge by Ginny Smith to take a look at the science news that's hit the headlines this week. So Ginny, what have you got for us? Well, this is an interesting study that actually refutes something that we thought we found out a little while ago. So researchers thought that willpower was something that got used up. So after you'd done a difficult task, it got harder to do another difficult task and that you could reinstate your willpower by having some sugar, some glucose. But actually, they've now found that this is only the case for people who think that willpower is a finite resource. So if you think that your willpower will get used up, it will, and then sugar will give you a boost. But if you believe that willpower is maybe like a muscle that gets stronger when you exercise it, so actually you feel invigorated after a difficult task, then you don't need the sugar and you can carry on at that pace. Why did we think sugar would make our willpower stronger in the first place? Well, there were studies that found that people who did a difficult task and then were asked to do another difficult task did worse, and that giving them some sugar made them do better. There was even a study of judges who found that their decision making sort of trailed off towards lunchtime and then got better again after lunch. But this group of researchers at Zurich and Stanford University didn't really believe the explanation because glucose is vital for all of your brain's functions. So the body's developed ways of maintaining your level of glucose. So it just didn't make sense to them that you would need that instant burst of sugar to help you when there should be sugar there all the time. So they divided their volunteers into two groups, depending on whether they believed that willpower was depleted by use or they thought it was strengthened after use. And then they gave half of each group a sugary drink before asking them to do two difficult tasks and the other half got a sweet drink but it didn't actually have any sugar in it. 
So they found that the limited theory group who thought that their willpower would be weakened after use did better when they got the sugary drink than when they got the non-sugary drink. But the other group, the group that thought that willpower wouldn't run out, did just as well in both conditions. But we've all had that feeling that the judges mentioned, a feeling a bit tired and sluggish just before lunch. So is that instead not related to our willpower, but just due to the fact that when we don't have enough glucose, obviously our amount trails off and our brain works slower in a way? So what they think is that people who believe that willpower gets used up become very sensitive to their internal cues of how much energy is available. And then they feel like they can only carry on using their willpower when there's lots of energy resources. So they think that you're actually sensing your body's levels of energy and thinking that you need that energy for your willpower. So I suppose willpower as an idea is sort of an assessment of our internal levels of strength, whether we think we can resist something or not. Of course we can, whether we think we're going to or not. So it's sort of a placebo effect in a way. Yeah, exactly. If you believe that you can't do something without having that internal buzz of sugar, then you're not going to be able to. Whereas if you believe you can do it, you can push through, you don't need that sugar, then it turns out you don't. So I suppose our willpower is all related to our self-belief. Oprah would be very happy about it. Well, I've been looking this week at the Antarctic seafloor. Now, this international team of scientists was really interested into the difference between wood and bone when they end up on the seafloor. Now, in the rest of the world, when bones from animals drift down into the depths, they get eaten up by these weird bone-eating worms called ossidax. They're sometimes known as zombie worms. I showed them to the office a little bit earlier and they were a little bit freaked out. So if you're about to hit search on Google, I'd sort of take one step back from your computer there. And wood, when it gets down to the bottom of the ocean, similar things happen and gets eaten up by mollusks. But what's really interesting about these worms and mollusks that eat up this debris in the ocean is that they obviously have a huge dispersal. There are huge distances to cover for such tiny creatures in order to latch on to the next bit of bone that might randomly fall down to the depths. But can they make it to Antarctica? That's what they wanted to know. So what the team did was they got a load of wood and a load of bone, whale bones in fact, and they left them 500 metres down in the Antarctic Ocean for a year. When they brought it back up again, what they found was that the whalebone was covered in these ossidax, these zombie worms, but the wood was practically in pristine condition. So there didn't seem to be any wood-eating shipworms or mollusks around. But why is the Antarctic Ocean so different from the rest of the world's oceans and seas? What makes it so special? We're joined here in the studio by Dr Simon Morley, who studies the Antarctic seabed at the British Antarctic Survey here in Cambridge. Simon, why are the Antarctic waters so different? The Antarctic waters are separated from the rest of the world's oceans by the polar front or the circumpolar current. So this is a circular current that goes around the Antarctic and it goes from the surface and in places it actually goes to the seabed. So that acts as a barrier. It's a very sharp discontinuity that potentially stops larvae and other animals crossing the front. Is cold also an issue? Obviously, if this is providing a barrier, does the temperature change more dramatically? Absolutely, yeah. This is also a very sharp change in temperature. So within the Southern Ocean, it is the coldest ocean on the planet and temperatures there that are actually too cold for many animals from outside the Southern Ocean. And how does this mean the animals change? Are they adapted differently to be able to live in those waters? They are. Uh, many of the animals that live in the Antarctic have these special adaptations that allow them to live in the cold. So there's fish with antifreeze, there's giant sea spiders that have taken the place of crabs which can't live there because it's too cold. When we say giant sea spiders, how big are we talking here? These can be the size of a dinner plate. 
they're clearly not true spiders, but they're they're pretty impressive beasts. Why are we so interested in these, these Antarctic waters? I mean, your research obviously looks into shallower waters than this research, but is it just that these animals that live there, that survive there, are so different from the other ones? Was there anything else special about that environment? Yeah, I mean, these animals that live there, so they're adapted to the cold, and that makes them very sensitive to very small increases in temperature. And also, it's one of the most rapidly warming oceans on the planet. So if you want to understand how animals are going to be affected by climate change, it is one of the best places to look. And how are those animals being affected by climate change? Are we already seeing differences? We are seeing some complicated and subtle differences already. But the predictions we're getting based on the sensitivity of these animals make us very worried about their ability to survive. Even through the next sort of two or three hundred years, we expect to see some major changes in the animals that live down there. You're talking about sort of investigating these animals who live in such extreme temperatures and extreme environments. How are you doing that in the middle of Cambridge? Yeah, so I'm lucky many years I get to go to the Antarctic for a couple of months, go diving and do my research on the animals. But we also have an aquarium here in Cambridge, so we can do some experiments in between miles and we get animals brought back so we can look at the effect of climate change on these animals. I'm now terrified that there's one of those dinner plate sea spiders hanging around in an aquarium in Cambridge somewhere. Um, Not quite dinner plate size, but there are one or two pretty big sea spiders. It's worrying. So you mentioned that crabs couldn't go to the Antarctic. Is that why there are so many sea spiders about? When the Antarctic cool, crabs have a real problem. They have magnesium in their blood, and at really cold temperatures, that acts as an anaesthetic. So there are no crabs in the shallow water of Antarctica, and we think that the sea spiders filled the gaps left by the crabs. So with climate change in place, how can that change the environment of the Antarctic? So this is a really interesting story because very recently a new piece of kit was deployed in the Antarctic into the deep sea and they found crabs where they haven't previously found them. It's a really fancy bit of kit and who knows if those crabs were currently there but weren't seen or whether they have actually moved in. We need to do more research but there are certainly crabs just kind of hanging off in the deep water off the Antarctic. And, and if, the, if the surface waters, if the shallow waters warm, as we predict, then in a few years, in a few hundred years' time, the crabs could easily come back into the shallow waters. So you're making it sound like they're plotting, which is totally playing into my fears here, but it's very exciting. This paper is obviously not just interesting because of we find out more about the marine biology of the Antarctic, but also because if wood's so well-preserved, we might be able to find historic wrecks. So Ernest Shackleton's Endurance, for example, sunk in 1916. I grew up on stories of Antarctic adventure like Ernest Shackleton. For me, it's very exciting that we might be able to find this pristine ship lying at the bottom of the ocean. Are people sort of itching their fingers about being able to go out there and find it? Yeah, no, and I believe there's at least one and maybe more expeditions that are currently really interested in going to search for this wreck wouldn't it be amazing if bits of that wreck are still sitting there it's pretty deep so it's in a few thousand meters so it'd be quite a challenge but it'd be amazing to find that where can i sign up is my only question i mean do they take on cabin boys i have absolutely no idea but you'll have to get in the queue behind me damn it thank you very much to dr simon morley from the british antarctic survey We'll have some more news with science journalist Mark Peplow in just a moment. But first, Elon Musk's company, SpaceX, has already built rockets which compete with those used by NASA and the European Space Agency. And last year, one of them became the first commercial spacecraft to visit the International Space Station. But this week, it's another of his projects which has been in the news. 
a new kind of train which he thinks could transport people over the 350 miles between Los Angeles and San Francisco in only 35 minutes. Here's Dominic Ford and Alex Parkin-Smith with this week's Quickfire Science. The Hyperloop trains work by seating passengers in capsules, which are then fired down tubes at close to the speed of sound. To reduce air resistance, vacuum pumps will suck most of the air out of the pipe. The pumps will be powered by solar panels on the top of the tube, but one tiny crack anywhere along its 350-mile route could bring the trains to a halt. No one has ever made such a large vacuum tube before. The closest they've come is the Large Hadron Collider, but even that is tiny in comparison to what Elon Musk is proposing. To reduce friction even further, magnets are used to levitate the capsules in the middle of the tube so there's no contact with the tube's walls, just like a maglev train. But magnets are also used to propel the capsules forward using an arrangement called a linear motor. In such a motor, a magnet on the front of each train interacts with magnets on the side of the tunnel. These attract the train as it approaches and are flipped to repel the train as soon as it passes so they always push the train forwards. Assuming that capsules are fired once every two minutes, and each could carry 28 passengers, Elon Musk thinks the system could carry over 800 passengers each hour. One of the biggest difficulties of travelling so fast is that even the slightest bend in the track will produce enormous g-forces in the capsule, as the track has to be almost completely straight. But these trains might take a while to get off the ground. Elon Musk says he's too busy with other projects to build it himself, but hope someone else might step in. That was Dominic Ford and Alex Parkin-Smith. And as Dominic says, Elon Musk is looking for somebody to help him get the project off the ground. So if you've got some spare time and fancy helping to build a 350-mile-long vacuum tube, do get in touch. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Well, if no one will let me help dig up Shackleton's ship, then I might have some time on my hands. Now, there's been a lot in the news this week all about the UK's growing energy needs. You might have seen the fracking protests in Balcom, Ginny. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of very angry people, aren't there? There's a big debate going on about the fact that the UK needs more energy, but we can't decide where to get it from. Now, one of the options is solar panels and wind turbines, which offer a really low carbon way to generate power, but they only work when the sun shines or the wind blows. So to make sure we've got power 24 hours a day, which, let's face it, we've all turned on the light at 2am. We need a way to store the energy that they generate. And until now, this has been really expensive. However, writing in the journal Nature Communications this week, scientists from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology think that they found a new and really cheap form of battery based on bromine solution. And Dominic Ford spoke to Cullen Bowie all about his idea. So the great thing about this battery is that it gets the performance of systems with a membrane but it eliminates the cost of the membrane. So this system actually has no membrane, which is one of the most expensive components of the cell. So what's this membrane doing in the battery? So the membrane is in the battery to separate the reactants. So you have reactions happening either side of the system, and so you need to separate those reactions or else they would happen spontaneously and you wouldn't be able to get any useful energy from it. What we propose is a membraneless hydrogen bromine battery. So batteries are typically characterized by their chemistry. We have this hydrogen bromine chemistry, which actually isn't new. This chemistry has been around and known since maybe the 70s, and people have been excited about it because of the cheap and abundant reactant materials and the potential for high efficiency. The problem is that 
it's very difficult to design a membrane that will last for the thousands of cycles and that is low cost. So it's, it's been limited by largely the materials because this hydrogen bromine battery makes hydrobromic acid, which is just difficult to work with for some membrane materials. Conversely, maybe 10 years ago, a research group at Harvard invented these membraneless systems. So they were the first to propose eliminating membranes altogether and using fluid mechanics in order to keep your reactants separate. The issue there was that they used chemistries that they didn't produce a lot of power. So it was interesting, but for the most part, the industry has disregarded these cells because they never produce enough power or energy in order to make them practically viable. So what we've done is taken these two technologies, which have kind of been sitting on the shelf effectively, and put them together. And by putting them together, we get a hydrogen bromine system that now eliminates its issues with the membrane. And so by eliminating the physical structure, we eliminate one entire component and all of its associated costs and complexity. Now, you're using bromine. Why is that so especially cheap? So bromine is all over the world. It's in salt water. So any place where you have a large body of salt water, you're effectively, as a byproduct of harvesting other things from salt water, you get a lot of bromine. I know you're using this battery for use with renewable energy generation. Why is it so important with renewable energy farms to have these large batteries? You have no control over when the sun is shining. Demand varies throughout the day. So if you could couple storage with these intermittent sources like solar and wind, you can store the energy when it's not being used and then sell it back to the grid when it is being used. When I think of new battery technologies, I think of cell phones and iPads and so on. How do the needs of renewable energy farms compare to what you need for, say, a cell phone? They're much more cost-restrictive. So the battery in your cell phone or in your laptop is probably um, at least 10 times more expensive than what you would like to see for something that's going to go grid scale. I guess I find that quite surprising, actually, because you think if you're building a huge wind farm, say, you've got a lot of infrastructure there, you're pouring concrete for these windmills, I would have thought the cost of the battery on the back of that would be a relatively slight cost. Our prevailing battery technologies are still very expensive. They use a lot of precious metals. They use things that are difficult to contain or control. And so when you talk about that large scale, it's difficult to make it scale and make it affordable. Is lifetime also an issue here? I mean, I'm thinking if you're building something in the remote desert to harness solar power or you're building an offshore um, wind farm, Presumably you don't want to be replacing those batteries every few months off the back of that, that renewable energy farm. Yeah, you nailed it right on the head. Lifetime is absolutely an issue. You want thousands of cycles, maybe 10,000 cycles. So, you know, you mentioned batteries before. How long does your battery actually operate? Maybe you get a year or two, then after two years you notice all of a sudden it can't hold any kind of charge. That would be unacceptable for something like a grid-scale application. And the other problem that we have with cell phone batteries is the memory effect, where if you're only ever half discharging it, then it doesn't tend to hold its full charge any longer. That, I guess, is also something you've got to avoid in these these batteries that are being charged when the sun shines and discharged when it's cloudy. You'd like to minimise all those effects. So it's a very challenging problem. And what we've presented is just one more way, and the novelty in this one is that we've eliminated one of the more costly components in the battery. How long do you think it will take to get this from the lab into the field? I mean, 
if you're saving a lot of money, if this is very cheap, then presumably the energy companies will be very keen to, to use this as soon as possible. I would say five to seven years. I mean, we're, we're talking about developing a new battery, a new type of battery. Um, new batteries don't come out very often, and part of the reason is battery development is, is hard. <laughs> that was Cullen Bowie from the Massachusetts Institute for Technology. Now we've got science journalist Mark Peplow in the studio with us now. What have you got for us this week? Well, researchers have unveiled a new model that can actually predict where groundwater is going to be contaminated with arsenic. This could help to deal with a major world health problem. About 140 million people drink arsenic-contaminated water around the world, and it's a major health risk. It can cause liver and kidney disorders and various types of cancer. So a group led by Luis Rodrigo Ledo at the Swiss Federal Institute of Aquatic Science and Technology, they looked in particular at China, where since the late 70s, there's been this growing arsenic contamination problem as more and more wells tap into groundwater aquifers. Now, there's a lot of naturally occurring arsenic around various parts of China. So back in the 90s and early 2000s, the Chinese Ministry of Health started to do this massive screening campaign to sample individual wells and they tested almost half a million wells across the country for arsenic contamination but they still only covered about 12% of China's counties so clearly it was going to take decades to actually go through the whole lot. What you really needed was some way to predict where the highest risk areas were likely to be and that's what this team have now done. Have they managed to do it by looking at the rocks that are found in that area? Is that where the arsenic's coming from? There's actually like eight different factors that they're using to bring in things like wetness, soil salinity, topography of the ground and so on. Information that's quite easy to gather these days with satellite imaging and so on. And these all serve together as a proxy for where arsenic contamination is likely to be. And basically what they did was um, uh, they took the WHO's, the World Health Organization's sort of threshold for safe arsenic levels, which is 10 micrograms per litre, and just divided areas into whether they were more than that or, or lower than that, high or low risk. And they were able to predict areas that they didn't know about using this model. They were able to predict 83% of the areas that were indeed over that level. Now, you compare that with population maps and you start to see where the highest density of population is and the highest risk of arsenic is. Put those together and you have the hotspots where you immediately have to prioritise for water testing. So it really could speed up the process and the Chinese government are doing that now. And what can they do once they know that an area is contaminated with arsenic? Is there a way of removing it from the water? Well, that's a really good question. Knowledge of the fact that your groundwater is contaminated with arsenic, you would think the immediate thing would be, well, stop drinking the water, find an alternative source. But the experience in Bangladesh, which has had a major arsenic groundwater problem for decades, is that once a well has actually been sunk, it can actually be quite hard to stop people using it, even if it is contaminated, because there may be areas where there is simply no other source of water. So what's really needed is to accelerate infrastructure development there so that you do have safe water supplies. Now, that's a broader problem that China is trying to tackle at the moment because there are large areas of the land which are incredibly arid and they're talking about projects to ship vast amounts of water from one side of the country to the other to try and serve that. This is the sort of issue that would play into the factors of where gets that water first. Fascinating. I never realised that so much water could be contaminated with arsenic. I mean, you, you think of it in relation to murderers, but not necessarily in relation to water. 
Well, I've been looking at something a bit different this week, which is about schizophrenia. So schizophrenia is a really debilitating illness, but it's very poorly understood. So what some researchers have done is they've been looking at making a model of it in non-human primates. So they were looking in macaque monkeys, which might hopefully help us to develop better treatments and a better understanding of the illness. It has been commonly thought that it was problems with a brain transmitter called dopamine that caused schizophrenia. And that's what a lot of the treatments at the moment rely on. And these treatments can be effective for some of the positive symptoms, which are things like delusions and hallucinations. But there are lots of other symptoms you get with schizophrenia that don't seem to be treated. And those are things like problems with decision making, cognitive issues that are actually almost more debilitating. When we talk about animal models, we normally talk about changing their genetics in some way to recreate a disease. Why can't we do that in order to create a model of schizophrenia? We don't really understand what causes schizophrenia. There does seem to be a genetic component, but not everyone with a family member develops it and we don't fully understand the genetics yet. So what they're looking at doing here is actually using a drug called ketamine, which has been used as a recreational drug, but here they're using it to model schizophrenia. So basically it acts on the receptors for a different neurotransmitter to the one we were talking about before, NDMA, which is a bit surprising because we always thought it was dopamine that was important in schizophrenia. But it's been found that ketamine can cause psychotic symptoms that seem quite similar to schizophrenia when healthy adults take it. But these symptoms only last as long as the drug's in their system. So what they've done is they've given these macaque monkeys ketamine. Now, of course, you can't really ask a monkey whether it's experiencing psychotic symptoms. So what they've done to look at whether you get the same effect in the monkeys is they've read their brainwaves using a non-invasive technique called electroencephalography, or EEG, where you put electrodes over their scalps and you can read the activity of their brainwaves. Now, the brains of people with schizophrenia can react quite differently in certain situations to the brains of healthy people. The task that they used is they played them some tones and one of those tones was different from the others. Now, for most of us, that different tone would grab our attention and you can see that in that we have a different brainwave response to that tone than to the ones we're used to. But people who suffer from schizophrenia don't show as much of a difference there. And importantly, healthy adults on ketamine don't show that difference. So they looked at the monkeys and they found that, again, if they gave them ketamine, they didn't show this difference. So they're showing the same kind of brain patterns as human adults on ketamine and schizophrenic people. So now that they've shown that the macaques who have taken ketamine are a reasonable approximation for schizophrenic human brains, would it involve testing drug therapies? And if so, how can you then rule out any interaction between your drug therapy and the ketamine that's already in the macaque brain? That's very much the next stage. It's obviously not perfect. There may be interactions, but it's a start. And we may also be able to understand a bit more about what's actually going on in the brain because the NDMA system is a huge system in the brain. It's very, very active and it controls all sorts of different things. So it's very difficult to understand what heightening it or, or dampening it down would do. And if you want to read any more about the news stories we've been chatting about, you can find more information, including the references to the papers, on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. Thanks, team. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and I'm currently in Perth, Western Australia, with my fellow naked scientist, Victoria Gill. 
We're here to take part in Australia's National Science Week and to check out some of the amazing research that's also happening in this part of the world. Coming up shortly, how a science that was born in Cambridge is keeping planes in the air over Perth and unlocking the secrets of who and what lived here over 40,000 years ago. Before that, to something that lives here right now. Victoria's been out on the water with Murdoch University PhD student Delphine Chaban, who studies the population of the 25 or so bottlenose dolphins that live in the Swan and Canning Rivers, right here in the middle of Perth City. Hopefully we're going to see some dolphin upstream. So we just came back from downstream and we didn't see any. But um, the Swan Canning River Park is big enough to have a chance to see them today. Exciting. Right. Well, let's go. So using the door solving and photo identification, we can recognise each individual so that we know which individual associates with another one. The botanose dolphin associate with a typical individual. Generally, you will see a group of male together and a group of female with calves together. So that is something that I'm looking at. First of all, we're trying to... Ah, oh, we have dolphin. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, wow. So how, how many can we see? One, two, three, four. At least four of them, maybe five. And you said we, we've got Gizmo. His Gizmo's a bit yes. of a celebrity. <laughs> yeah, Gizmo, it's a calf. It's very easy to recognise because this calf was unfortunately untangled last year by a fishing line around his dorsal fin. It took us the Department of Environment Conservation and the Police Marine and the work from all the community a bit of time to actually be able to disentangle it. But he's recovering very well, even if his fin um, has been well damaged. Um, it's, it's always very great to see this little boy, actually. Can you just describe where we are, Delphine? Because this is, this is an amazingly urban, well, suburban, I suppose, site to be spotting big marine mammals like this. So whereabouts are we? So we are in the Freshwater Bay, just north of uh, Waterfront. So here it's a marina, and uh, you will very often see this dolphin um, in this area as well. What's good about this area for them? Um, at the moment, they're actually foraging and socialising between the calves. Um, so I guess it's a, a very good spot for feeding. So when you spot them, what's the sort of process that you go through to gather your data? So we basically mark a location to um, spot them on the map. We also take in photo of their dorsal fins so that we can recognise them individually. And we're looking at um, their behaviour so that we'll be resting. And in that case, it's foraging um, slash uh, socialising for the calves. Um, and you also um, look at, so when you look at the composition, that would be mother and calf, and you uh, try to um, check out the distance between the mum and the calf, basically. So you, and you'll take a few photos to keep a log of, of what their dorsal fins look like, because that's how you identify them, isn't it? You look at the 
different shapes and, and notches on their on their dorsal fins? Yeah, that's right. So we're looking at the shape of the dorsal fin, but also any niche and notch um, that have on the fin, which is actually what we're using to identify them. What sort of challenges do they face living in an environment like this? I mean, it's quite a, a busy marina around here. We're surrounded by the suburbs. There's, there's a lot of activity, lots of boats, lots of fishing. How challenging is it for these dolphins to live in an environment like this? Well, you basically say everything. Um, a lot of boats. You also have a lot of fishing. Um, so it's a lot of uh, fishing line, um, say, in the water, unfortunately. And so... Um, the dolphins are in a very high risk to be untangled by a fish online. Um, so it would just be stuck and start cutting a bit more or even um, deeper and um, get infection and uh, just touch the whole health of the... What do you hope for if you'll be able to... What information you'll be able to find out that'll help protect these animals by studying in, in the way that you do? Well, first of all, trying to look at which habitats the dolphin area the dolphin are using the most in the river would be a very good um, um, thing to monitor both recreational and any other activity in a typical area. Secondly, we're trying to, and it's not trying, it's all the time, uh, pass a message um, to everyone asking to take their rubbish out. This is one of the major issues in an urbanised area, hard to control, and if no one is doing anything, it will be just being... So trying to spread the message about people not leaving fishing equipment and, and rubbish and other things that they might be able to ingest or get tangled up in, in the water. That's right. Dolphin researcher Delphine Chaban speaking with Victoria Gill. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith. And now to a science that was born in Cambridge, recently celebrated its 60th birthday and has gone on to totally change the world as we know it. Guess what it is? I am, of course, referring to DNA technology. And Murdoch scientist Mike Bunce is using this science to unlock the secrets of the past, the present and the future. In a nutshell, what our lab's good at is getting DNA out of really crappy substrates, um, sometimes literally because we work a lot both on fossilised faecal material but also modern faecal material. Why should that be difficult? In the post-mortem environment, after you die, your DNA starts to decay. And also when you eat material, the DNA starts to decay as you start digesting it. Why it's difficult is that during that decay process, the DNA starts to break into small little pieces. So it's technically challenging because we've got to try and get all these small bits of the jigsaw puzzle and try and piece them all together again. So how are you using this technique? We've got research programs um, looking at fossil bone material. We use it to look at faecal material of penguins that live off the coast here to figure out what they're eating. We use it in the airport environment to look at birds, uh, what's in their gastrointestinal tract after they've had a bad encounter with an aeroplane. So there's lots of applications of of how we can use degraded material and, and try and figure out what's actually in it. Tell me about the bird example. I've never come across that before. We got contacted by Perth Airport here in Western Australia. When birds come into contact with aeroplanes, either literally by hitting them or they go through the jet wash, they cost the industry over a billion dollars a year. We first got involved with the airport mainly through the idea of swabbing aeroplane engines and wings to try and figure out what species 
is actually in that blood smear that you might swab off a, off an engine cowling, for example. But the questions quickly became more subtle than that, and we were saying, well, what was the birds doing at the aerodrome in the first place? And so when we had carcasses like that, rather than them being discarded, we were actually trying to extract as much scientific information as we could from them, which involved dissecting them open, taking out gut contents, and then figuring out what brought them to the aerodrome in the first place. Were they eating grasshoppers? Were they eating grass or trees that were planted in and around the airport? Have you found out what was attracting the birds? Yeah, well, we, we looked at about 80-odd birds, um, you know, things like galahs, cockatoos, uh, water birds, and of course they all have different diets because they're different species. Things like galahs, which are flocking birds, um, they ate a lot of this invasive weed called erodium. And so we know right from the outset that this is not a good thing to have around your airport, and especially not on a high-risk bird species that flocks. Of course, if we end up with flocking birds and an aeroplane hits a flock of birds, the implications are, of course, much more damning than they are just a single small species. So, you know, we are actually providing information on grass and and weed species where where better control measures could actually reduce the incidences of of aircraft's interactions with wildlife. What about way back in time? Because this area is particularly rich. If I just go southwest out of Perth a couple of hours, I'm along Caves Road in the Margaret River region. And having been there, it is beautiful, but there's a very rich archaeological seam running through there. Are you working there? Yes, we're doing a lot of work in the southwest corner of, of Australia. It's one of 34 biodiversity hotspots in the world. Huge numbers of endemic taxa only found here. By going down some of the caves and looking at some of the archaeological sites and paleontological sites down there, we're asking questions like how many species used to be there? How biodiverse were they? What plants and animals used to live in certain areas? So someone will excavate one of these sites and they'll get what, bone? Is that what you're using to get the DNA? We use both bone excavated from the material as well as sediment. So, you know, to give you an example, Devil's Lair is one of the most famous archaeological sites in Australia. It's a sequence that goes back 50,000 years. The Actually, the oldest campfire dated to Australia to date at about 42,000 years is found there, so Australia's first barbecue, if you like. Where um, is it exactly? So Devil's Lair is located um, and it's right down the southwest corner, close to the, to the Margaret River area. So when we excavate material down there, we take all the very small bits of scraps of bones that the archaeologists and paleontologists aren't that interested in, and we collectively grind them all up into a soup, and then we ask the question, what's in that soup of bone? How many species are in there? What's the biodiversity of, of say, kangaroos? located in that in that soup of material and i suppose because archaeology is in a series of levels or layers if you take different bits from different layers you've got a timeline there haven't you so you can map your biodiversity onto time and and that's the key thing that we're trying to find it's really how the biodiversity has changed over time what sort of quality of dna comes out of that and how far back in time can you go The quality of DNA is highly variable. Some caves preserve DNA really nicely, other caves do not. In these southwest caves in southwest WA, we are getting DNA back to 45 to 50,000 years. Are any surprises coming up as you unlock this amazing sort of molecular fossil that we've got in these bones? There's always surprises, especially when we've started doing these bulk bone sampling, really, where we just collectively look at all the material. We're accessing um, things like swans that could only have ever got into the site because people were hunting them and taking them in there. We've got these unknown sequences of kangaroos 
The closest match that we've got to something is a tree kangaroo that now lives in Papua New Guinea. Clearly that's not the species that used to be there, but something a bit like that was there. And All we've got now is a, is a DNA signature. We've got no fossil to actually match up with that. What about more contemporary studies? Because one other thing that I know you've been working on, because I saw you give a talk on this, was analysing what are in traditional Chinese herbal remedies. You can subject this to DNA analysis too. Yes, it's really no different when it boils down to it, whether we start off with a herbal medicine tablet, a 40,000-year-old sediment sample, or a gut contents out of a bird at an airport. They're all just degraded DNA. So the herbal medicines Australian customs here was asking us, what is in this material? In a wildlife forensic context, it's illegal to trade in certain endangered species. And so we started saying, what are all the animals in the sample? What are all the plants in the sample? So last year we published our first paper in PLOS Genetics that looked at extracting DNA from herbal medicines and asking us, you know, what's in the mix? Dare I ask, what is in the mix? Uh, there's a, a lot of undeclared plant and animal constituents in there, and some of them are probably of quite worrying concern for human safety. Well, what sorts of things were you discovering? One of the um, medicines that were seized by customs here has the species Asarum in it. Uh, that's a genus of plant, and asarum has a chemical in it called aristolochic acid. This is a potent carcinogen. It binds to your DNA and causes a bulge in your DNA, and when it copies it, um, it will mutate that DNA strand and potentially cause cancer. Now, that sounds quite extreme, but in actual fact, the highest rate of urinary tract cancer in the world is in Taiwan, where they have a lot of herbal medicines that contain asarum in them. It's a species that really shouldn't be in any herbal medicines that we have because we know it's bad for us. Mike Bunce. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Victoria Gill. If you live in a small country like Britain or in the middle of a city like Cambridge, then getting to school is rarely a problem. There's usually a bus or you can even walk. But what about if you live a thousand miles from the nearest school? That's a problem routinely faced by many children who live in remote parts of Australia. But to make sure that they get an education, SIDE, S-I-D-E, Schools for Isolated and Distance Education, exists to take teaching, historically over the airwaves and now over the internet, to people in remote places. And they asked Victoria and I if we'd like to deliver a science lesson for their pupils. A thousand children, over thousands of square miles, joined in our lesson. I'm Angela Signorelli and I work at the Schools of Isolated and Distance Education in Perth and we're a fully distance ed school and uh, I'm one of the uh, online teaching and learning coordinators here. And, and for people that don't live in a, a country as vast as Australia, <laughs> can you explain just briefly what distance learning actually is and what you do here? Yeah, absolutely. So we are an online school and so we teach to students who live in Western Australia, which is the biggest state in Australia. So they can be in all sorts of situations. They can be in the country, out in the bush, as you might imagine, on stations, or they can be in small regional towns where they don't have access to the subject matter that they want to do. They can be in metropolitan schools because they can't do a particular subject, or they might be at side for a whole lot of um, socio-emotional medical reasons as well. So basically any kid that can't access a regular face-to-face bricks-and-mortar school can qualify to come to side from kindergarten through to year 12. And that's what Chris and I are here to help you out with today. So whereabouts are we going? What are we going to do? We're going everywhere. We're going definitely all over WA, possibly overseas. It just depends who's registered. We've uh, invited all the children 
who come to side and we've invited all the pretty much all the primary schools and the lower secondary schools. So we've got quite a lot of people enrolled in our event and it's an online event so we do it. It's a bit like Skype on speed I suppose. Um, it can do a lot more things than Skype can but it's similar. A lot of people know Skype. And, um, and yeah, we don't know where we'll go but we'll see when we go into the event. We've got a map of Australia where the children will plot where they are at the moment. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Let's go and have a look okay. at where we are. Let's go. Fantastic. We're just going in um, to this main building and we'll get to meet all the other folk in here. Hello. So, hi everybody, this is uh, Victoria Gill and Chris Smith. This is Ross Manson, he's our head of online teaching and learning. Jonathan Bromwich, one of our deputy principals. I'm Robin Verburn, Deputy Principal of the Schools of Isolated and Distance Education in Western Australia. So how many people are on the roll here? Who, who are we going to be speaking to? On our enrolment basis, we have 2,500 students and, and possibly more from the ages of kindergarten, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, right through to year 12, which are our 17, 18-year-olds. And some small categories of adults, young mums. What are the school rules? Uh, we have an attendance policy, the same as any traditional face-to-face -face school, but we don't physically have students on site. How do you actually know that they're doing the classes? But what we do every week is we actually have live lessons. So we use teleconferencing. We call it Skype with a whiteboard and so we can see each other's screen we schedule lessons with our students they're required to attend a scheduled lesson once a week they don't attend then we report them as absent so the learning experience the, the sort of engagement experience must have been totally revolutionized by the web and presumably all these people in remote places are using satellite connections aren't they to get to you they are, and some of them are based on home, in their own family homes. Some are based actually on in schools. So therefore, we may have a situation where there's a, a student want to do a specialist type of course or subject, and a small country school may not have the staffing requirements to deliver. So that we might have just one enrolment from that school wanting to access a specialist physics or chemistry teacher, any of those sort of things. We run the normal, the same curriculum as a standard high school or primary school. That's neat, isn't it? So you can actually deliver quite specialist stuff to, to remote areas that wouldn't be able otherwise to feel that particular aspect of learning. That's correct, yes, they do. What about doing exams, though? Because if someone lives in the middle of nowhere and you're sending them all their information through the internet, you, you can't really fairly sit an exam that way, though, can you? Or can you? No, exams have to be paper-based still. Um, we have situations where each student who's enrolled has to nominate a supervisor, even if they're overseas, and that supervisor has some criteria attached to it, so it can't be mum or dad sitting down and, and supervising and helping with the exam. What are the results like? How do people find this pattern of learning? This style of learning requires students to be quite committed and dedicated, and yet when we get our results based on our Year 12 results at the end of year. We are comparable with schools across Western Australia who are sitting exactly the same as In some of our subjects, we've actually been above state average. What about peer support, though? When children go to school, part of school isn't just what you learn in the classroom, it's what you learn about the people in the classroom with you and how to get on and relate to them. If you are in the middle of nowhere, you're not missing out a bit on that? 
A lot of our students form connections through their interaction online. So, for example, at the moment, um, one of the Year 12 history teachers has put up a forum where they actually go in and help each other. So, you know, you don't have that sitting next to each other in a chair, but quite often they then email each other from their own personal accounts and have, have a discussion or meet up. I'm Noel Chamberlain. I'm the principal at the Schools of Isolated and Distance Education. OK, Noel, where are we going? You're going to our torture chamber. It's <laughs> called a multimedia studio. <laughs> OK, lead the way. Follow Jonathan. This is almost like a radio studio, isn't it? Yeah, if you can't hear and you're at a school, you'll need to... So there we are on the screen. The Naked Scientist. Lots of exciting coloured solutions. I'm taking my picture off Twitter. All right, so the way it works is, it's, as I said, it's a bit like um, a Skype program where we're sharing, in this case we're sharing voice, we're sharing vision, and I've taken the liberty of putting together some slides based on some questions that some of the children sent Brilliant. and then I guess you guys are used to the, the ad lib and the whatever yep. happens so the children can send questions through text chat which is what I'll be monitoring and as Jonathan said they could be sitting in front of an interactive whiteboard, a whole school could be sitting watching so there could be 300 kids watching we'll try and gain some figures just to get an idea of how many kids are there these ones it's pretty obvious that there's 20 sitting at a computer all over WA. So can they speak to us? Yes, they, they can speak. No, so they can speak. Anything in, this, coming in. in this smaller group, we'll get them to speak because we know that these are all side kids. I know that their audio works. Okay, so let's go. Now, I'd like to welcome along our special visitors from all the way from uh, the UK, from England. We have Dr. Chris Smith, and you should be seeing him there. There he is. Now, I'll give the video camera to another one of our guests, and she's, her name is Victoria Gill. And both Dr Chris Smith and Victoria Gill, they work on this uh, BBC program, which is all things to do with science, and that's what we're all about today, because it's Science Week. All right, we've got lots of questions coming through now. Paul Taylor has got a question, and uh, Paul wanted to know, what's the difference between a bacteria and a virus? Good question. Hello to Paul and perhaps the crowd with you. The difference between a bacterium which is one single of a group of bacteria, one bacterium. We've got so many questions coming in, so we're just going to keep ploughing through them. Here's one from Grace at Netherlands Primary School, and her question is, it's a pretty big one, how much hotter can it get in the centre of the Earth? OK, well, the core of the Earth is about 6,000 degrees C, centigrade, and that's about as hot as it's going to get. Why is it hot? Well, there are several reasons why it's hot down there. One of them is what we call gravity. Okay, so pretty hot then, <laughs> to say the least. Okay, great question there, Grace from Netherlands. All right, there's a question here from Donna, and Donna wants to know why does salt melt ice? That's a great question. I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm exhausted. How do you reckon that went? I'm really amazed. It was good fun, wasn't it? It was good fun. There were some amazing questions. Yeah, really good, actually, and from the middle of nowhere. But they were asking really insightful things, weren't they? Yeah, it's amazing to think that some of that was going out in uh, classrooms all around Western Australia. But also abroad as well, because there are people overseas. But I don't know why we don't do this more in Britain, really, because I think that would be really popular, wouldn't it, in, or in other countries, not just people who are remote. Yeah, it's a great idea. That was, that was a lot of fun. I'm exhausted. <laughs> 
We really were exhausted after that, but it was amazing fun. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and there's just time now to join Hannah Critchlow for our question of the week. This week, we get effervescent over this. Hi, this is Bella, and my question is, why does a glass of fizzy drink bubble over when ice cubes are dropped into it? Thanks, Bella. So, have you also noticed carbonated drinks bubbling over when an ice cube is added? And if so, why does it happen? First stop, who best to ask? My name is uh, Gérard Lutte-Beller. So I'm a physics professor in Reims University in France. So the physics of bubbles, it's my, it's my area of uh, expertise. So yes, perfectly placed to supply the answer of Bell's question on why fizzy drinks fizz over when an ice cube is added. So the, the main reason is that when you have a, a soda or a fizzy water, it means that the liquid holds uh, carbon dioxide molecules in excess. So uh, all those carbon dioxide molecules in excess must escape from the liquid medium. But to escape into the form of bubbles, the liquid needs some tiny imperfections in the glass. And at the micrometric scale, the surface of the ice cube is not at all smooth. It is full of tiny cracks. All these imperfections, when they will be in touch with the liquid, supersaturated with carbon dioxide molecules in excess, so those tiny molecules will be able to produce what we call, from the scientific point of view, the nucleation process. It means that the liquid will be able to, uh, to nucleate bubbles. This is the reason why when you introduce ice cubes in your soda or in your fizzy water, it will promote the bubbling process. Thank you, Gerard, champagne bubble physicist based in Reims, France. So, soda drinks have been carbonated, so they're full of carbon dioxide molecules floating around in the liquid, and that needs to escape. These carbon dioxide molecules can only form stable bubbles when they land on a surface with minute indentations like the side of a glass or the surface of the liquid. An ice cube has lots of bubble-promoting imperfect surfaces, so lots of bubbles form, causing the glass to fizz over. You can experiment further with this concept at home. Suck on an ice cube to make the surface smoother and then add to the liquid and less bubbles and fizz over should occur. Well, with that degassed, we close by sleeping on this. Hi, this is Elisa Weiss calling from Long Island, New York. I was wondering if you can tell me what's going on in the brain when we dream. What makes us have bad dreams? What causes nightmares? And do dreams really have any meaning? Thanks. So what's the point of dreams and why do nightmares happen? Hannah Critchlow. And if you can help us out with the answer, then drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook. There's also a web forum at nakedscientists.com slash forum where you can join in the debate online. That's it for this week. Join us next time when we'll be hearing about a revolutionary treatment for muscular dystrophy and a disguise for surfers to help them to ward off sharks. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.